Well, good morning, church. As we are uh, getting started in our time preaching uh, the word, I want you to think for a moment about a time that you have been really scared. All right, now I'm not talking about just frightened or startled like there's a bug or a snake or something like that that you come upon, but I'm talking about really scared, really just frightened even to the point where you feel like you're going to die. So, so think, think for that uh, for a moment, kind of uh, scroll through the, the memories of your brain to think of a time where you were just really, really scared, maybe even to the point that you thought you were going to die. Well, one of those moments happened to me, which I've shared with you before, uh, when I was driving to Ohio uh, back to college during a snowstorm. And I was driving my grandma's uh, old car, a two-wheel drive Oldsmobile with no tread on the tire, on the tires at all. I mean, they were just bald tires. And I'm driving through the snow on Interstate 70 back to Ohio. And as I go to switch from the left-hand lane to the right-hand lane, the people in front of me start to hit their brakes. And so I'm switching lanes. I'm seeing people are braking. I tap my brakes, and the car just starts to spin. And it spins at least uh, one time around to then I am facing the complete opposite direction of traffic and I see a semi coming straight at me. Now in that moment, I was scared, to say the least. I mean, I, I thought in that moment, like, okay, this is it. I can see the semi coming. I don't know how to maneuver the car out of this situation. And I thought for sure that things were done. Now, I'm not exactly sure what happened next. Everything happened so fast, but essentially my car then slid just perfectly from the lane I was in right onto the shoulder of the road and came to a stop just as the semi drove past me. And after I collected myself for a second and kind of breathed the sigh of relief, uh, I put the car into drive and did a little U-turn and just continued on my way on Interstate 70. But when I arrived to my destination safely, I mean, I breathed a deep sigh of relief. And I'm telling you, the rest of my day was filled with joy and gladness, right? I was like Scrooge on Christmas Day, who had just been given another day to live, and I was hugging people and kissing them and just like excited to be alive, man. Just like ready to embrace all that, that, that the Lord had for me the rest of the day. Now, nothing in my life had really changed from the time that I left Indiana to the time that I arrived in Ohio. I didn't have any more money. I didn't have any more power. I didn't have any more friends. I didn't have any more popularity. Like nothing, nothing really tangible or practically changed in my life. But I simply experienced the joy and the gladness and the relief of living in the reality that I was going to die, but now experiencing the joyful reality that I had been given another day to live. But what about you? What about you? When have you been really scared or frightened or distraught? Maybe the doctor found something that needs a little bit more looking into, and you just have to wait for more tests to happen or for more specialists to have appointments with until you know for sure if it's cancer or not. Maybe you've lost a job and maybe that has scared you or frightened you because you're unsure of where the money is going to come from to pay the bills at the end of the month. 
Or maybe you've had a loved one pass away and you've been scared as to how you can go on with your life without that person being a part of it. And whatever it's been, it's probably coming to the surface of your mind right now because to you in that moment, it felt like the world was over. Or at least the world as you knew it was over. And as we look again at the story of Esther, we come to Esther chapter 8. And in Esther chapter 8, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, he's just been impaled on the gallows, on his own gallows. However, the, although the enemy has been defeated, a decree of death is still in effect for the people of God. At the end of the year, remember at the end of the year, on a certain day, Haman had gotten Xerxes to sign off on a decree that the people all throughout the Persian Empire on this one day could kill and annihilate their Jewish neighbors and take all their stuff. And so, yes, Haman, the enemy, has been killed. That's good. The enemy defeated. But a decree of death is still in effect. The people are still scared for their lives. And yet, and yet something happens in this chapter that by the end of it, we will see there is gladness and joy amongst the people. And what happens is not the decree of death is revoked. That's what we would think maybe would happen, right? The decree might just get torn up or just get tossed out and discarded. That's not what happens. They will still feel the weight of that decree of death, but something will happen in this chapter that will produce gladness and joy. And so church, if you desire some gladness and joy, I want you to engage with me as we look at Esther chapter 8. But let me, let me pray for us as uh, we jump in. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask for your help to understand it. But Lord, we also ask for your help to be changed by it. I ask that you would guard and keep me from trying to re- reorient your word to our lives. But Lord, please help us instead reorient our lives to your word. We come asking for your help. Help me speak truth. And help your truth transform us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at Esther 8, verse 1. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Okay, Haman has been impaled. And uh, in that time, after someone was executed, all their property and wealth went back to the king. Okay, and so uh, uh, Haman is, is executed. All his wealth is given to the king. The king gives it to Esther, and Esther gives it to Mordecai. Okay, and remember, Haman was, was a pretty wealthy dude. He made a, a huge bribe at the start of this book. And he was the number two in command of the Persian Empire, this Persian Empire who had golden cows couches in their tents uh, on their military outposts and things like that. So this was likely probably the, the second wealthiest guy in the entire world, and all his wealth and riches now end up with Mordecai, okay? I mean, Mordecai, this is a rags to riches story, right? He was in sackcloth and ashes, and now he has been given the wealth of maybe the second wealthiest person in the world. 
So this is good. The enemy, I mean, so far this is good, right? The enemy has been defeated. Esther is safe. Mordecai is wealthy. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Is that, is that it? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be some of our reactions? I've got my safety. I've got my wealth. I've got my position. And I'll just kick back and enjoy life, right? Esther's safe. Mordecai's rich. What else is there? Oh, wait. There's still a decree of death hanging over the people. And what we see here is Esther again, once again, risk her life for the sake of her people. She's done this now multiple times. She risks her life. She goes in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. You remember, you remember the golden scepter, right? If it's not extended to the person who has come before the king, that person gets executed by the soldier who holds the axe standing in the throne room, right? It happens right then. Esther has risked her life again, and the king has again extended the golden scepter to her. Verse 5, And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters divide by, uh, devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Okay, let's stop for a moment. Xerxes is like, hey, what more do you want from me? I've killed Haman. I've given you all his wealth. I've put Mordecai in a great position. Esther, why are you still crying and weeping and pleading at my feet? Notice this is such a foreign concept to Xerxes because Xerxes has never really thought about anyone other than himself. And so he can't understand why Esther is not happier here in this situation. But verse 6 shows us the heart of Esther and why she's weeping and pleading and at the feet of the king. Look at back at verse 6 again. Esther said, For how can I bear to see the calamity? That is coming to my people. What, what would you have done, church? Would you have gotten your money and your position and your safety and been like, all right, I'm out, good luck, everybody else? Or would you have had enough of a love for your people that you would not have been able to sit idly by and watch calamity come upon them? Now, let's make it a little bit more real this morning, okay? Let's take it out of the theoretical, all right? What are you doing right now? Are you content to work for your money and for your comfort and for your safety and then say good luck to God's people, the church? Or do you have enough of a love for the church that you are not able to sit idly by and watch calamity come upon it. 
In high school, as I was considering what to do after high school, uh, multiple people told me that I should be a youth pastor. And that was kind of the common thing back then. Uh, you know, someone would be like, oh, hey, you love Jesus. Uh, you know the chords G, C, D, E minor on the guitar. And you're really good at capture the flag. You should be a youth pastor, right? That was, those were kind of the main criteria. If you could grow a goatee, it was like extra. Yes, definitely. That is what God's calling you to. And, uh, and so I thought about it. I thought about becoming a youth pastor uh, and going into that. Uh, but, but here was the problem. The problem was that I was a pastor's kid. And I'm still a pastor's kid. That's right. But as a pastor's kid, even though my parents probably shielded me from most of it, as a pastor's kid, you get to see the unfortunate, ugly side of church life. And unfortunately, most of us, if we've been part of a local body of believers for any length of time, we've seen fights, we've seen gossip, we've seen slander, we've seen bitterness, we've seen some serious conflicts, and we've seen some silly conflicts, like over the color of the carpet or how many plants to have in the lobby and things like that. So let's kind of group all those things, and, I, and for, for our purposes right now, I'm going to con- call those things church shenanigans, all right? Uh, so we've, we all experienced some church shenanigans. So because of church shenanigans, in my late teens through my mid-twenties, I didn't walk away from Jesus, I didn't even stop going to church, but I certainly had a level of frustration with the church. I was annoyed with the church. And therefore, I did not go right into ministry. And FYI, that's a, that's a good decision. Do not go into ministry or aspire to leadership out of an annoyance or a frustration. It won't be good for you, and it won't be good for the people that you are trying to serve. But what God started to do uh, in me over the course of some years was to break down my frustration with the church and instead instill a love for the church. Church shenanigans started to not frustrate me or annoy me as much as they used to, but instead they broke my heart that these were the things we were dealing with and spending our time and energy on. And that was really the point that I knew that it was time to stop sitting idly by on the sidelines, so to speak, because of a love for the church. I could not sit idly by and watch calamity come upon it. But what about you, though? What's your posture towards God's people? Would you pour out your life for their good? Guys, God calls the church the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Listen, my my bride, Brittany, if you think poorly of her, or talk badly about her, or think that you and me can have a healthy relationship without you acknowledging her. Like, at the very least, we're going to have some issues in our relationship, right? You and I are not going to experience the close fellowship and communion with one another if you don't also love her. And church, you are not going to experience joy and gladness in your relationship with Jesus if you also don't love his bride. 
Newsflash, Jesus loves the church and all her shenanigans. And I want us to love what Jesus loves. You want to have joy and gladness? Love what Jesus loves. Value what Jesus values. And he loves her so much that he bought her with his own blood. It says in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I want to love what Jesus loves. I want to value what Jesus values. And so this is why I went into ministry. This is why we planted a church. This is why we are part of a church planting network and we give money to a network to see more churches planted. This is why we want to be a church planting church because the call to go and make disciples and to teach the nations all that Jesus has commanded them, it happens in the most healthy and sustainable way through the church. A gathering of believers who have submitted themselves to one another and to biblical church leadership. This is what we see in the early church. They went, they evangelized, they discipled, they planted churches, they installed elders and deacons to serve those churches, and those churches raised up others and prayed over them and sent them out to plant more churches. So what's, what's the problem with the church in America? Is it that our secular culture is taking over? Is it we've lost our political influence? I don't think that's the problem. I think one of the main problems is believers don't love the church like Jesus loves the church. I don't think believers are praying for their church and pleading for their church like Esther here pleads and weeps for her people. I don't think many believers value the church like Jesus values the church. I don't think they give and serve and commit to it because they're comfortable to sit idly by and watch calamity come upon it. And, and, and listen, I want to challenge one more thing here. If you have a bigger love for the church outside of America than you do the church down the road, and don't get me wrong, I think we should have a love for both. We should have a love for the church outside of America. Borders should not uh, determine our love for brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. We should have a heart for the nations to go to the nations and, and preach the gospel and plant churches. But listen, if you have a bigger love and a bigger value for the church outside America than you do the church down the road, I would say you probably love the idea of the church more than you actually love the church. And here's what I mean by that. My friends and family uh, who live uh, far away from me, uh, man, I think the world of them, right? Like they're, I'll look at their Christmas cards and be like, man, I wish I could spend more time with them. They're awesome. Their lives are awesome. We have a great relationship. These are some of my favorite people in the world. It's too bad I couldn't see them more. My friends and family that I see every week Sometimes they get on my nerves. They frustrate me at times. They hurt me at times. Why? Because they're human beings, and I'm a human being, and I rub shoulders with them, and I actually live life with them. 
But now what we're seeing is that there are large groups of people who want to romanticize the church that is far away, and they will scoff at the church down the road. And you see, they haven't valued the church. They haven't valued the bride of Christ. And so for years and years, people have gone to their local church to merely consume from it and not to contribute to it because they don't really love it or value it. They haven't given, they haven't served, they haven't used their spiritual and natural gifts to build up the body. They haven't prayed for it. They haven't pleaded with God for it. And then they sit back and they self-righteously scoff, like, look at what has happened to the church in America. And what I would say to them is, friend, you have happened to the church in America. Do you love the church like Jesus loves the church? Could gladness and joy maybe be found in loving what Jesus loves and valuing what Jesus values? But no, Esther could not sit idly by and watch calamity come upon her people. She pleads with the king. She weeps. She falls at his feet because this decree of death is still hanging over her people's heads. She sees destruction awaiting for them, and she steps in to plead for them. Look back at Esther 8, verse 8. Xerxes says in verse 8, he says, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Xerxes here, he's not sure what more he can do for the people, but he tells Mordecai and Esther to write whatever they want. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, month which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. Okay, so this is, this is about two months after the initial decree was written, back in chapter 3. And it's about nine months before the d- day of destruction was coming. All right? Uh, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Okay, this was the Persian version of express delivery. Okay, fast race horses, bred for this purpose, carrying this new decree, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On that day, throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Okay, let's stop. Okay, a decree of death had been written back in chapter 3, and now we see a counter-decree written that gave the people of God permission to defend themselves. Now, next week, we're going to talk a bit more about why at times in the Old Testament, God gave permission for his people to kill. 
Because this can be a really difficult topic for a lot of us to wrestle with this. I mean, we read the Old Testament, we see a lot of violence and a lot of bloodshed, and it can be confusing because then we get to the New Testament and Jesus, and he talks about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's hard to make sense of that. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Let that be a little teaser to hopefully bring you back next week. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But you see a decree here that was issued from a Persian king could not simply be revoked. They couldn't just tear up the creek, uh, the, the, the decree and say, never mind, hey, just disregard that. The decree was always in effect. And the same is also true with the words of our God. They are eternal. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. But the decrees of our God, unlike the decrees of Xerxes, are always wise. They're always wise. Xerxes did not have a lot of wisdom. He made some unwise decrees and commands. But God's words and decrees are always wise. Psalm 104, verse 24, it says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. In wisdom. Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable his ways. They can't be comprehended. But they are always wise. They are always wise. What comfort it is to know that God's decrees are always wise. We're, we're always having to question the decrees that are handed down to us from our bosses, from our parents, from church leaders, from our teachers, right? We're, we're getting these commands and things from people, and we're always having to try to discern, hey, what's, what's really a wise decision, you know, and what's not? Uh, you know, our boss tells us to do something. We're like, okay, is that really the best decision, right? Is that really wise? And, and to some degree, we should do that. We should do that. We have to be discerning. We have to be discerning when we're watching the news. Like, is this, is this really true? Is this, is this really wisdom? Or we, we read something on social media and we have to decide, is this really true? Is this really wise? Is this really eternal? It's like, is this going to last? Or is this just kind of a fleeting cultural opinion that, you know, next month is going to be completely opposite? But then what gladness and joy there is to be able to come to God's word and his decrees and we can come and rest for we know his nature and character and we know that he is always good and he is always wise. I mean, what rest my soul finds when I come upon things that God says, even if I don't always like them. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, there, there are things I come to God's word and, and think, oh, that kind of that hits me wrong, Lord. That's not as politically correct. I could preach it a little bit easier if you said it like this. 
God's word often makes me feel uncomfortable. And some things I come to are really difficult to understand. I can't even fully comprehend the ways of God. I can't fully get my mind around this. And yet I can come to God's word and I can rest that even though I might not fully get my mind around his ways, I know his ways are wise. I know his ways are true. And I know his ways are eternal. They will stand forever. All the day long I am wearied trying to discern what is wise, what is unwise, what is fleeting, what is eternal, what is false, what is true. And then I come to God's word and my soul finds gladness and joy in coming to rest and know that these words are wise. These words are true. And these words will stand forever. And much in the same way that the people of God received commands and edicts from the Persian Empire, so we have received commands and edicts from our great God. And also like the people of God in the Persian Empire, there's been a decree of death that has hung over our heads. God had told Adam in the garden that if he rebelled and disobeyed his word, that he would surely die. And Paul, when writing to the Romans in Romans 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Church, we don't, we don't like that word right there, or at least we shouldn't initially. We oftentimes think so highly of ourselves that the thought of deserving death seems offensive to us. However, most people, if they're honest with themselves, they know this to be true. It only takes a brief observation of our world and the circle of life to see, at least from a biological standpoint, that death is inevitable. And we're reminded by it at every funeral we go to, and we're reminded about it every time we turn on the news. And the people of God in Persia during Esther's day, when they heard the edict that called for their death, they fasted and they mourned and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they were in great distress. However, the story does not end there because it's not the only command and edict from the king. Gladness and joy are coming because another edict is coming as well. Look back at Esther 8 verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, and they rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Okay, stop there and check out Mordecai's attire here for a second, right? No more sackcloth and ashes for Mordecai. He's now clothed in splendor. He cleans up nice. His, his temporary splendor that we saw a glimpse of back in chapter 6 when Haman had to lead him around on a horse has now become his permanent splendor. 
Much like the temporary glory and splendor of Jesus that Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of at the Mount of Transfiguration is now the eternal glory and splendor that Jesus dwells in. If you're not seeing pointers to Jesus all the way through Esther, you need to catch up. We only got one week left, all right? But I thought that might be one you missed. But look what happens when this second decree is received in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Okay, no longer are people afraid to declare themselves Jews, but now non-Jews are declaring themselves Jews. Conversions are happening, which, you know, some commentators say that there likely probably was some real conversions here. People had witnessed a miraculous work of God's providence throughout the empire, and they're like, hey, I want to follow the God of Esther and Mordecai. But if we're realistic, there's probably some false conversions here, too, of people just knew they didn't want to be Mordecai's enemy. They saw how that had played out for Haman. But focus in on the start of verse 17, okay? Focus back in on the start of verse 17 and consider how this applies to us here and now. Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy. Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy. Isn't this what we desire, gladness and joy? To be, to be able to echo David in Psalm 30, when he says in Psalm 30, verse 11, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. How did the people experience gladness and joy? They had stood under a decree of death. They had walked to the edge of the cliff, the cliff so to speak, and had seen the day of destruction. They, they had seen, that, right, like me, they were on the interstate facing the wrong direction, and a semi was coming at them. But then what happened? Messengers came riding on horses from the capital, heralding good news. Proclaiming gospel that another edict had been issued that promised them life. The first decree was not considered void or annulled, but another decree had been made that promised them life. And church, we also stand under a decree of death, that the wages of sin is death. But another decree has been made. Romans 6.23, right? It says, for yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus came to not void the covenant or agreement made with Adam in the garden, but instead to keep it. So that just as humanity had fallen into sin and death in Adam, so too whoever would put their faith in Christ would be declared righteous and given life. And so praise God that a second decree had been made. 
Paul continues to speak of it when he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, church? Good news? A decree of death is to some degree understood and experienced by our world. But have they heard the decree of life? Paul goes on to say how they are to hear in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Imagine being a Jew in ancient Persia, sitting under the first decree, knowing that nothing but death awaited you sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Can you guys, I want you to try to envision, use, use some creativity, envision this in your mind right now. Now imagine looking to the hills and messengers from the king have appeared riding on racehorses with a decree that promises life. Imagine gathering with the town to hear it proclaimed that no longer does death and destruction await you, but the king has made a way for your life to be saved. What joy and what gladness and what relief this should produce in you. You see, many times we do not experience the gladness and the joy that the Lord would have for us because we have not really stood at the mouth of death and destruction and really understood that because of sin, we deserve to fall in. And yet, what a sense of relief and joy and gladness we have when we rest in God's eternally wise word that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And, O oh church, when we see the glory of God that is revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is a joy and a gladness and a peace that washes over us. And we can breathe a sigh of relief from our working and striving, much like I did when I, my car safely slid onto the shoulder of the road. And when this good news floods our hearts and our minds, then we will plead and we will weep and we will pray for our people. Then we will love the church the way Jesus loves the church. Then we will love our neighbor the way Jesus loves our neighbor. And so imagine again now, put yourself back in ancient Persia. 
people gathering in these towns to hear this decree from the king. They're in sackcloth and ashes and they're mourning. And imagine what joy and gladness there would be to be the messenger. To get to share this decree of life to those who have been living under a decree of death. Evangelism happens, discipleship happens, church planting happens when people see that there is great joy and gladness in getting to share this good news and this good word from our King. And it is out of a joy and gladness in Christ that will, is what will propel us to go to the nations and to go to our neighbors, not as a group of individuals, but as the bride of Christ who despite her shenanigans, even her feet are beautiful because her gospel is beautiful and because her God is beautiful and it's God's love that is making her lovely. And we must go church. We must send. We must plead and we must weep for our people because discouragement and despair and death and destruction and darkness are all around us, but wherever the king's command and his edict reach, there will be gladness and joy. Discouragement, despair, death, destruction, and darkness are all around us, but wherever the king's command and his edict reach, there will be gladness and joy. Let's pray.